you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Art Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th, people. So check it out. Hi, I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> I've made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on a smattering of others. I do sales and I'm also a distribution consultant and I am the former manager of Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer and manager Layla Cater-Dom onto the show to talk about her long career in Hollywood, how she found her way into management, and what she does in her day-to-day as a manager. After that, we have an article from IndieWire and our favorite of all favorite writers, Eric Cohn, about the long delay a film has from being praised at film festivals to hitting theaters or streaming. And then Liz asked me a question, maybe. And then we also read a brand new iTunes review, probably. Well, that that's for sure. But first, Liz, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm sick. <laughs> I feel like we all went through the pandemic, and we're still in the pandemic, obviously, but for two years, none of us were sick. And then I've been sick twice in the past two months because of daycare. Other than that, for the horror film, Amy and I have these conversations that shake me to my core in that we're like, why are we doing this? What are we doing the right thing? Is this the right story? What should we be doing that's different? Is this a horror film? I don't really know. Let's have one of those conversations this morning. <laughs> it makes you nervous that you're not making something good anymore because the foundation is shaking. So that's what's on my mind. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I feel like most writers feel the way we're feeling right now at some point in their project. Yeah. Well, it's good to question what the movie is and and what it wants to be, because I think that's very important. Like, because you might want it to be something, but then it might want to be something else that you you don't care about or that you don't you hadn't even thought about, you know? So I think those kind of questions are good and they can be scary. I feel like that process of like really getting down to like the root of what your movie is, is like what will make a good movie eventually. Because, you know, like with the alternate, like, you know, we totally did that. Like it, it was a completely different script in the very beginning and, and it morphed into very many different versions of itself over the, the six years or whatever that I was writing it actively or inactively, depending on the year. But, uh, you know, eventually we distilled it down to like what I thought it, it was it should be basically like what the best version of the story was like make sure everything that was connecting to the theme of the story and to like the characters and that nothing in the movie was extra that everything was intentional to serving those themes and the story and the characters you know themselves and i feel like doing that is really hard but i think what you're doing and it really necessary so it's it's actually you're saying it's like oh it's scary whatever but it's like actually it's really good to hear that you're doing those things because a lot of people don't care about that stuff <laughs> that's a good point and it all stems from i won't out them but someone who listens to our show emailed me and they were like hey i want to start coaching filmmakers and supporting them will you be my beta test essentially and i was like yeah i would love a coach i need a coach i can't you know and we worked out a system where we're, we're in a trial relationship right now and he watched everything i ever made and he said to me this horror short you made witchy and then your first film bread and butter are the ones where i see you more most clearly and the other things i don't really see you and i was like that's really amazing because those are the things where I see me most clearly too. And then we established what that voice was. And I call it pervy and weird, which I think is my brand. It's pervy and weird. And then I started looking at 
this horror film that Amy and I are writing. And I was like, is it pervy enough? Is it weird enough? Does it reflect me enough? And it kind of spun out into this like evaluation thing. I think it's really hard to look outside when you're inside, right? You're inside the script and it's hard to look outside and it can kind of spin you backwards a little bit. But but I agree. It's coming from a good place. We're working on it. And it's nice to know that I have permission to be pervy and weird as much as I want to be. What are you be dealing with? Be pervy and weird. Be yourself. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're a really pervy person, but I, I, I like that description of your work. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing okay. I, I had a really intense week last week. I... <laughs> I um I had like a little bit of a, a panic attack on Wednesday as I was just, just doing too many things and and like doing trying to like load my schedule with too many commitments and I was having a conversation about this thing that we're we're pitching that I've been so excited about and I've been talking on the show probably talking about it on the show too much to be honest but um I guess I'm just too excited about it so yeah I don't know but anyways like I was having a conversation about it and I just like I I started I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. And then I like started to like shake. I hung up the phone and like I was able to not like show anything weird on the phone to the person I was talking to. So that was good. But then I basically like got into bed as fast as I could. And then like I just had to drink water and like count and breathe. And it was like an hour of like shaking and convulsing until like I could calm down and actually sleep. And then I got sick for like a day or two, like really two whole days. And then finally Friday, I felt better. But I basically was like, I have to stop doing so many things. Like I, I got out of a commitment that I was for this movie that I was helping out with. And then I, um, you know, basically just decided to like, just focus on the things that are really important, like my own projects and, and my day job, of course. So just trying to simplify things. That was kind of like a wake up call. Like I can't do too much. And you know, it was, it was really scary because, like, you know, when you're in it, you, like, think you're going to die, basically. <laughs> and, then, and then you're like, oh, wait, I just need to breathe and drink water and breathe and drink water. And eventually I'll get through this. And, you know, my wife was really great. She helped me, you know, deal with it. And I was supposed to be watching my daughter at the same time. So she was able to, to take over and watch her. And, hmm. yeah, it just all it was all a lot. But things with the, that project are going well. Like, we turned in everything that we need to turn in last week and now we're just waiting to hear back and it's like you know since we've turned everything in like we've heard nothing again it's like been complete crickets which is like how it goes i guess it's just been a few days it's been like one business day right it's been two business days (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i think you're okay but it feels like you know it feels forever in in the time like considering that we were like, you know, communicating every day and like they were asking for this and that and this change and that change and whatever. And so like to go from that to, to nothing feels like a lot. But I'll probably check in with him with my contact in a couple of days and just, you know, see if there's any update. But I mean, I feel like this whole thing is just like, it's totally pie in the sky. It's like, just got to let it go. I need to focus on my own writing. I was working on a new idea that I, that I had recently and I really, really fell in love with this this concept and I've been working on it. And then when this whole thing happened, I basically just put that aside and just focused on the prep work for this pitch. And I'm realizing now it's like, okay, well, however exciting this thing is and like, you know, sure, like you could read the script again and give notes and whatever, but you don't want to spend too much time on it because, you know, it may not get any further than where it is at right now. So it's 
probably better to put that energy into something that I own and control. And that's my own thing that like I can make on my own. I don't need these magical <laughs> investors to to make it happen. Like I, I can probably raise the money myself for this next one. So I don't know. That's kind of what I'm going through. It's it's sort of a lot, but it's been good. It's been like kind of a back to basics sort of last few days. And it's been great to like have a life again and get to go to bed at a reasonable time and, you know, not have to do things all weekend and just actually have a weekend off with my family. Like that was, that was really nice. That was really nice. I've gotten panic attacks since college, so I understand how you feel. Though mine mine are more frequent and less in, like the first ones were really intense because you don't know what's going on. And then now it's like this fun little like, I'll just very calmly turn to Sean and go, I'm having a panic attack. And, you know, we just kind of suffer through it. But it's not that really horrific experience that I think you had, which is... Those are really horrible. The intense ones are really bad. Just if it's helpful, and I actually have a scene in my first movie about panic attacks and people giving each other advice about them. What I think helps is having like like a sucker. I know that sounds strange, like a cough drop or a sucker or something. So it's like this really tiny task that you're doing that you can concentrate Mm. on, right? Or it's like you could do a million other different things. You can like, you could draw or you could, whatever it is, but like to bring it back down to minor things so your mind isn't going wild. It's just something very simple to concentrate on. That's what helps me too. Not fun. They are not fun. I'm very sorry you had one. Yeah. Only my second in my life, but uh, yeah, yeah, not good. good. No bueno. I had a really, really bad one the night we took Colin home from the hospital. And the only thing that got me through was a YouTube meditation video. (laughs) Like like a random one. You're like, you're on a lake. I was like, I'm on a lake. I'm on a lake. Thank you. Thank you. I need this lake. Wow. But I want to acknowledge that your your revelation that you had, I think I came to something very similar really recently too, and, and maybe even talked about it in this segment of the show of like, when you are not the driving force of the project, there's a temptation to come in and really try to make it happen. But there are so many forces that you can't control and it will be exhausting and depressing because you're battling <laughs> things that are much bigger than you. So it's like, yes, you know, it's it's like the plant, what is it, plant the seed and then fuck the seed argument that I always talk about. <laughs> right. You're planting a seed and I hope it will grow, but you can't go crazy, right? Yeah. I think that's a really, and I, I like going back to basics. We need barriers. We need breaks. We need family time. We need to get to sleep. We need to eat well good that you're concentrating on basics right now. Yeah, things. those are important things. Another important thing is to go to www.patreon.com slash podcast to support us on Patreon. We'd like to wish a very, very happy birthday to Aunt Fallon from Australia. Thanks so much for joining our Patreon family, Aunt. Much, much appreciated. You also don't forget to check out jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. You know, they, they work with people like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI, and they even have customized plans that fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. So, without any further delay, here's our chat with Layla Cater Dom. All right, so thank you for being on the show, Layla. So, can you give us a little bit of a taste of you? Could you give us your one minute bio or wh- however you want to introduce the world? Or reintroduce the world. Well, I feel you. like I'm so old now. A one minute bio is a little tough, but I'll do my best. 
<laughs> so I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up outside of Milwaukee. I went to a small liberal arts college called Carroll College. My dad taught there. So I was forced to live at home. And my dad drove me to school. And it was very weird. It was like high school, but it was college. So after that, I was like, I got to get as quickly and far away from here as possible. So I went to grad school at Cornell. And this is like early, early internet days. So I didn't really know what was out there. Like I didn't know that many facts about like the film industry or like what kinds of jobs were available. So at the time, my dream was to go into public relations. So after Cornell, I moved to New York City. I had an internship doing PR at Comedy Central. The CEO of Comedy Central, his assistant said, when you're done with this internship, I'm going to hook you up with a temp agency that places people in the entertainment field. So I went in for my meeting. And literally when I was sitting there, the head of the company said, oh, they have an opening at Miramax Films. Like, what do you think about working at Miramax? I was like, I mean, that sounds amazing. So I started there literally the next day. And I was very lucky. I started in the development department, didn't know what development was. I was surrounded by people who went to film school. So it was a rude awakening. But luckily, I had in grad school reviewed movies for the Cornell Daily Sun. So I, I already was in sort of a critical frame of mind when it came to film. And, you know, I worked in a movie theater in high school, like I was a huge film buff, but it just didn't occur to me like that these jobs existed. So they gave me a script to read and I, I was so nervous. It was like the highest stress reading of a piece of material of my life because I knew if I had smart things to say about it, they would keep me around. And if I didn't, I'd be out the door and I would just be there, you know, maybe that day and perhaps another day to answer phones. And that would be it. So luckily they liked the executives liked, you know, what I had to say about the script they gave me to read. So I stayed there for two years. There was a hiring freeze at one point. So then my options were very limited in terms of like moving up within the company. And they said, you can go into casting, which quite frankly, was like my worst nightmare. Like, I'm not a fan of, I admire people who work in casting. I personally don't like working in casting. So I was like, no, 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 that isn't for me. I'd rather work more closely with writers. I went to work at Three Arts with David Miner, which was really exciting. I was very lucky. Like at this point in my career, I was like at Miramax during like, Shakespeare in Love and The English Patient and like, wow. you know, landmark movies coming out. And then when I went to Three Arts, you know, Tina Fey had just been selected to work on Weekend Update with Jimmy Fallon. So it was just a lot of cool things kind of happening everywhere. The internet bubble had not yet burst. There were parties all the time. It was, it was a really great time in my life, even though obviously I didn't know what was kind of lurking below the surface at Miramax. But I mean, I made lots of amazing friendships there and learned a lot. So after that, husband who lived in LA couldn't leave. So I, I had been living in New York still. Moved to LA. I don't know. I did many things for many years. You know, I was a writer's assistant, director's assistant. I mean, I'm so old. When I was a director's assistant slash screenwriting assistant, the guy I was working for used to like dictate his screenplays into audio cassettes. And I had a dictaphone and I would sit and transcribe his screenplays on the, on the computer, <laughs> literally with a dictaphone. I don't even know if they make those anymore, but already by the time I was using it, it was like technology, if you want to call it technology that was going out the door, but he didn't know how to type, or maybe it was just willful ignorance. Like I'm just not going to learn how to type. I want other people to type for me. So yeah, long story short, then I was, you know, doing my own writing. I sold a script to Nickelodeon. We ended up moving back to New York because my husband got a job. My husband is also a writer. He 
helped launch the Colbert Report. So that brought us wow. back to York. So I had my kids and I was just kind of doing my own thing. And then we ended up moving back to LA because he wanted to switch to sitcoms. So he wrote on the middle for four years with Patricia Heaton. And that was a great gig for him. Meanwhile, you know, my son was diagnosed with autism. So I had figured I'd be going back into the workforce. I couldn't really go back into the workforce. So I focused on him and his therapy for like three years, which was well worth doing because he's doing very well. But um, it really backed up my like re-entry into the professional world. So I was very lucky. I ran into an old boss of mine from Miramax, Carrie Granite, who launched Walden Media. And he had a company and he said, why don't you come and run my development department at my company? So I went there and I worked with him on his projects. And that was really exciting and fun. And then eventually, like there were some funding issues with that permutation of his company. But I mean, he, he always comes back strong and he's gone on to do other great things. But after that, then the WGA standoff was approaching. And I thought, well, I worked at Three Arts and I have sort of a basic understanding of how to be a literary manager and I know how to write and I know, I know how to help develop things. And also over the years, I had done lots of like story consulting, script consulting, writing coverage and notes all along the way. So yeah, I just it came to me that maybe literary management was the way to go. So I worked at a boutique management company, Citizen Skull Productions, for a couple of years. I started right before the pandemic. So as you can imagine, it was really, really tough <laughs> trying <laughs> to do a commission-only job during a pandemic. So after I put in two years there... I made the move to zero gravity. So I've been there for six months. And yeah, it's been really exciting. It's been really fun. I, I work hand in hand with writers, developing their material and representing them and trying to help foster their careers. So is it still a commission uh, only job or is that different now that you're at zero gravity? Well, I'm not really at liberty to discuss my <laughs> current <laughs> situation, but you know, most management companies it depends on which company it is. Primarily, it is a commission job. Some management companies will have some sort of a base pay. Sometimes if you don't exceed that in commissions, you'll have to pay back. Other times, it's like you get a base salary and then just commissions on top of it. I mean, it just really depends on the company. And to, to press on that really quick, I'm sorry, Liz, I'm bogarting. But like, so how does that work? Is it based off of gigs that you land your clients? Like, is that where the commission comes? Or is it like if a movie yeah. gets made and they're the ones writing it? Like, how, what is the, the breakdown? All right. So say a client of mine gets staffed on a TV show. That client would pay a 10% commission to Zero Gravity on that particular gig for the duration of the gig. And that's mm. standard. That's standard. If somebody, you know, was at Three Arts or something, they would pay. 10% for the duration of that particular job. On the feature side, if it's a straight sale, the, manage, the manager would get 10% or management company, I should say really more specifically, the management company would get 10% of the sale. It gets a little trickier and a little more of like a long game scenario when you're dealing with option agreements, shopping agreements, because then there's no upfront money for the writer or the manager you're waiting until funding is put in place. And then only then is there compensation on any side. So it can be a lot of work, obviously, for the writer and whoever's like working in tandem with the writer as you're trying to get things set up. So it didn't used to be so hard, you know, and it used to be that people would pay more 
to option. Like you would see actual option fees. And now the trend is like, I'll give you a dollar. Can I option your script for a year? It's like, oh, cool. 10 cents. Thanks. Can we go back to talk about you as a writer? And sure. I don't have a lot of familiarity with lit management or, or the world of representation, mm-hmm. which is what's so great about being a part of this podcast is I got to ask all these questions. But do you ever sense any conflict or any concern being a writer and also working in representation? Like, do you feel like you don't get to scratch both itches, you know, left brain, right brain? Is there any kind of conflict or are you able to have your cake and eat it too, so to speak, right and rep? Well, I would definitely say my primary focus is on my clients, on helping shepherd their projects, on helping them with their writing, getting their careers going, giving them advice. In terms of my own writing, I look at it more as something I do on the side and for fun at this point. And I think, I I mean, quite frankly, I'd become a little burned out. It was many years of me trying to make it as a writer. And, you know, I was a represented writer. I had an agent and I had a manager. And so I think the reason a lot of people enjoy working with me is because I do know how it works from both sides and how it feels from both sides. And I think that's fairly rare when it comes to a representative, when you're dealing with somebody like I've gone out for staffing season unsuccessfully, which, you know, hence me now being a manager (laughs) and not like a working television writer. But I think that that people really luckily find that to be an asset and don't tend to view that as like, oh, are you going to be competitive with me at some point? Like writing your own stuff. Like, I mean, I, I find a lot of producers especially do do some writing on their own. And I think as long as I don't make that my like, primary goal, which it's clearly not, I think that people just view it as a positive. And I think it does allow me to give better notes, give more thoughtful feedback. I'm giving notes the way a writer gives notes more so I think typically than a manager gives notes. My notes are, what is the least amount of work that that you can do as a writer to get the script to the place where I can take it out and hopefully sell it or interest people in your writing? Whereas I think perhaps somebody who is not a writer in their own right, they're not as cognizant of like how much work writing really entails. So they might be like, just redo this, just redo that, page one rewrite. Because to them, it's like, you know, they think writing's easy. Like, I think that's the fallacy. Like a lot of people think, oh, well, you're sitting at a computer anyway, searching up (laughs) stuff on the internet. Everybody's always just sitting at their computer. So you might as well just write a screenplay or I don't know. It's funny to me how often people are like, oh, well, do you have another sample? Oh, do you have another sample? Like there's always that mentality. Like, can't you just churn out something else? Like, oh, you're a writer. Like, no problem. Just do another draft. Whereas, you know, I really understand like viscerally what it's like to sit down and to have to outline something and, you know, come up with the structure and come up with the characters. So yeah, but in terms of like my own writing, I mean, I've really put that on the back burner. But I do, in my own way, kind of scratch that itch to answer your question by helping other people with their writing. So can you talk about your experience with your reps when you were when you had reps and then like how you're trying to do things differently now that you are a manager yourself and like what that kind of experience is like going from one to the other? Well, I mean, I, I was lucky. I mean, I did have reps who I think were very responsive and and nurturing 
But at the end of the day, I think what I should have done differently is that I should have been advocating for myself. Like I look at how I hustle now for everybody else. I'm like, why wasn't I hustling for myself back then when I had reps? I would have been so much more successful. And I think that's the thing a lot of writers don't do is they kind of rely too much on their reps. And, you know, reps have to just because it is so hard to make a living take on multiple clients. It's not like the Colonel and Elvis typically where you have like one client, right? So, you know, it ends up being a numbers game for the reps to try to make a living. So conversely, it's like the writers should be using whatever time they have or whatever resources they have at their disposal also to further their own careers and network and make connections. Because I can tell you, I didn't help myself. And like, if I could do things differently as a writer, I would go back in time and I would have been emailing producers. Oh, I heard you might be looking, you know, reading the trades. I heard you might be looking for this. I've CC'd my rep. Can my rep send you that? And I I mean, I can't, I I don't know. It kind of upsets me to think about how much better (laughs) things could have gone, but it didn't honestly occur to me. And maybe I was a little bit lazy and you know, also it's hard to operate on your own behalf. And I think that's why people have reps. It's one thing if I'm reaching out to somebody, oh, will you please read my script versus me reaching out to somebody? Will you read my client's script? I believe in their writing. It's amazing. It's just so much easier. It's always, there's always a certain amount of weirdness when you're trying to advocate for yourself. I do sales. I'm in distribution and it's, I find the exact same thing. It's like, and I also am a filmmaker. So there's a complete difference to you reaching out to a distributor versus your rep reaching out to a distributor. I totally get that. Yeah. We had a lit agent from Gersh come in (laughs) a few months ago. And he said something that has been like spinning in my head ever since. The way he brings on clients is he's essentially putting together like the best dinner party possible. Like he's trying to find people who would excel at a dinner party. Mm -hmm. How do you look at bringing on a new client? Like what are you? What are the personality and professional aspects that you're looking for? Hmm, That's an interesting question. Here's what I'm looking for usually is somebody who has really interesting life experiences that they use as the basis of their writing. That is like the main thing I'm looking for. So for example, I have one client, he didn't go to college. He worked the railways as a conductor in the deep South for a decade And then he came to LA and went to AFI. So his writing is really rich and really fresh and really different because he didn't just do the usual path of going to college and, you know, going to film school or whatever, you know, he kind of made his own way and he lived his life. And like, I have one client who was a social, who is a social worker and he works with the homeless. And so he deals with really heady subject matter sometimes in his writing because it's based on things he sees on a daily basis. And so I'd say for me, that's like the main thing that I'm looking for. And also, I don't shy away from signing older writers. In fact, most of my writers skew much older, because you become a better writer, the more you write, like, to me, I don't understand all these people that put this premium on, like, I want to get the fresh faced kid right out of film school. I'm like, why would you want somebody who's still like, learning, really, like, of course, there's value to that. And some some people are way ahead when it comes to their professional development. And of course, there are some people who 
like, you know, right out of the gate are amazing writers. And, you know, those are people that I kind of have a lot of resentment toward (laughs) secretly. But in general, the people who have more developed voices and who are better writers are people who have lived and who have written. So for me, I just look at the writing on the page. In terms of a dinner party, I can understand that that point of view. And that makes a lot of sense when it comes to networking. It makes a lot of sense. Like those are the people that you want to send out to meetings because you know they're going to do great in meetings. And I think that's sort of the weird dichotomy with being a screenwriter in Hollywood when it comes to like pitching and writing. Because somebody can be an amazing writer and a lousy pitcher or vice versa. And it's kind of weird that we would even expect both out of any one person, yet we do. Because people don't want to read. They'd rather just be told like what a story is, I guess, at the end of the day. So yes, to a certain extent, I, I would prefer, obviously, somebody who is great, like on a call and who I think would be great in a writer's room. It's not probably as much of an issue with somebody who's a feature writer. But even then, it's like, you know, they need to be able to interact with people. And so I guess social skills and, you know, commanding a room and all that stuff. Yeah, that that does come into play, too. But for me, it's really all about the writing on the page. And if the writing like really speaks to me at the end of the day, that's all I care about. And if the writer is 60 years old, so what? I am not, you know, <laughs> some like I, I realize that that's like not necessarily the point of view that a lot of people in this business have. Everyone's like youth, youth, youth culture, youth culture, which I don't understand. And I don't really know when things started heading in that direction, but I'm like, I'm old people culture. <laughs> so what, what's your goal for your clients? Is it for all of them, like get them staffed in the writer's room? Is it like the thing that you're like, like hoping that they all would, would go for? Or do you kind of look for different goals based off of the writer's goals. Like, are you really happy to rep somebody who only wants to write features and like has no interest whatsoever in being, you know, staffed on a TV show? I would say if I could do everything over again, in terms of building my list, maybe I would have tried to be a little more specific and like narrowly focused. Like I only want to do feature writers or I only want to do TV writers just because, you know, each one involves like its own skill set and its own set of contacts that you have to make. Obviously, if you're pitching features, it's like you need to know people at studios, you need to know people at production companies. And if you're if you're trying to get people staffed on show, it's about knowing the creative executives at the studios and the networks and also at the production companies. So it ends up being a lot of heavy lifting, I think on both sides. So maybe it's like, if I could go back, you know, because I was at a boutique company, I was really just like quality, quality, quality. I don't care if they write TV. I don't care if they write movies. And also I think it's kind of hard to compartmentalize and say, I only want to do featured clients. I only want to do TV clients because inevitably over time, writers will write and get bored of whatever they're doing. And you're going to get your feature writers who want to write a pilot and your TV writers who are like, oh, I've always wanted to write a feature. So it's kind of impossible to, to really separate them. So I have both, you know, I represent both feature and television writers. In terms of goals for feature writers, obviously, it would be to get, you know, huge big budget movies made that they have written with no other writers <laughs> getting credit on those films. <laughs> That's the dream, like Marvel and, you know, big movies, but also A24 and Academy Awards. I mean, if you're like shooting for the sky, like, you know, why not? (laughs) So that would be the goal on the feature side. On the TV side, 
it has become very difficult to staff somebody. I mean, it always has been like getting a staff writing job in Hollywood is one of the hardest jobs to get. And it used to be that it was kind of a foregone conclusion that if you were like a writer's assistant on a TV show that you would get a script and eventually you'd probably get staffed on that show. But it's really not a foregone conclusion anymore. And so it's really tough, especially with rooms shrinking. And that's partially because budgets are shrinking. So when they staff a TV show, you know, they staff from the top down to the bottom. So there isn't always money left to even hire a staff writer. Because if, you know, the, the upper level writers are really, you know, big names or whatever, or just have really great negotiating teams, they use up all the money, there's nothing left. So they may say, we're not going to have a staff writer on this particular show. Or, I mean, there was one showrunner I was talking to about a, a particular project to just to see if he was going to be staffing anybody. And he said, no, I was only allowed a staff of two. And they're my two friends that have been working on this with me the whole time. So we're the room. So you're seeing very tiny rooms. You're seeing smaller orders, obviously. You know, it's not a world where you can count on a, you know, 22 to 24 order season for a show. You're dealing with like limited series and also limited series, especially like a lot of the times you have these people who are writing the whole limited series and then they sell it and then they don't staff anybody on that show. So it's really, really hard to staff a writer. So in some instances, it's almost easier at least to try to develop with them and try to sell projects with a, with a new TV writer because it's become so hard. But in terms of my goal, like my pie in the sky goals on the TV side, it would be to be selling TV shows left and right, staffing all my other writers on all the other TV shows. And the ultimate goal when you're a rep is to have everybody working all the time. You just want everybody working. And, you know, it's, it's been harder and harder to make that a reality thanks to the pandemic and thanks to, you know, shifting models in the entertainment industry. But I feel like the wheels are starting to turn. I'm hoping. I feel like things are slowly getting better, maybe more back to normal. I'm afraid to say it. I don't want to jinx it. But those are my goals. <laughs> so you have, you have these goals, right? But then you know, at least from, by the way, I think you know Ulrich better than me, but we're both writer directors, right? So, and we're both unrepresented. So I think there's this presumption from unrepresented talent that we can't do cold inquiries, that it's very difficult to get to reps. So how do you get to the clients that will feed into these goals? And how do they get to you, presuming that there are some barriers within the system? Well, I'd say the biggest barrier in general, which is something that is hard for writers and directors and anyone who wants representation to wrap their heads around is how limited a rep can be in terms of their bandwidth. So obviously, agents tend to take on more clients than managers. Managers tend to keep smaller lists. So I know with me personally, I've gotten really to the point with my list, like I'm just not looking for new clients. And I think, you know, people reach out to me, you know, I, I get people querying me all the time. And I've been there. I've been on the other side of the table, obviously querying people myself when I was looking for representation. And I know how frustrating it is. And I remember typically not hearing from people because, and, and, you know, at the time, I remember thinking, how horrible. These people aren't responding to me. I'm very upset and I feel hurt and rejected. But now that I'm on the other side, I'm like, 
I would love to respond to everybody and tell them I can't sign them. My list is too full. And I do try to respond to people, but I honestly don't even have the time to respond to all these people who are cold querying me when I have all these people that I have professional commitments to also reaching out to me. And also, I only have so much time in the day and I need to be able to service the people that I'm already working with. And so I try to limit the number of people that I'm working with because I need to be able to service those people to the best of my ability. So I think everyone sort of assumes all agents are always looking for potential clients. All managers are always looking. And if they're not responding to me, it's because they don't like maybe what I pitched to them. They don't like the sound of my resume. And that's probably not the case at all. It's probably just, I'm just not really looking for clients right now. It could also be, I'm not really interested in this thing you pitched me. I mean, that's, that's also part of it. I would say the ba- there are a couple ways that I feel like most reps nowadays get clients. One, obviously, personal recommendation. And another is I do feel like a lot of reps watch the contests mm-hmm. to see. And I think there also is this feeling that like, oh, if I do well in contests, my career is really going to kick into gear. I think usually the best you can expect from a contest is that maybe you'll get a rep. I think sometimes things sell that people have seen in contests. I don't think it happens as much as people would like to think it does. I don't think there are that many projects, and maybe I'm wrong, that producers like see in screenwriting contests and then like take all the way to the finish line. So I think that contests are a great way. I mean, I feel like even recently, like social media, people have been making great connections. One of my clients like posted about a project that he had just written on Twitter. And a lot of like big producers reached out to him and said, oh, I want to read this. An agent from one of the big agencies reached out and said, please send this to me. It was pretty shocking. And then I was like, should I be using Twitter and like (laughs) posting log lines for literally every project I want to take out? And honestly, I'm considering it now because I'm like, maybe there's some other layer that I could be adding to my arsenal that I'm not doing. I have to jump in really quickly with that. I had a, I have a, a I do development coaching in terms of like producers and and directors trying to be an accountability coach for them and help them get their careers off the ground. I had a client session last week and it was a producer and he's like, I need to find some content. I want to do the next Juno. This is the exact thing I want. I posted it on Twitter. It went viral. And I had at least one of your clients reach out (laughs) with the script. But I'm just saying like, it's so interesting. The power of social media is astounding. They they yeah. directed them. They directed us to you for what it's worth. They did everything okay. up and up. <laughs> but it's it just astounding what, what just saying like, here's an opportunity on screenwriting Twitter can do for a project. Yeah. So I wouldn't overlook that as, as and just, I think networking in general, at least now that Maybe there's going to be more in-person stuff. If you can do in-person, obviously that's better. I know everybody doesn't live in LA. I think we at least have gotten to a point with people accepting other people working at home. Like I do have some clients that moved out of LA during the pandemic because it's just become so hard to afford living in Los Angeles. And I'm like, I don't care where you live. Like you can live anywhere. I'll still represent you because there's Zoom. Like you can do meetings via Zoom. Okay, worst case scenario, you have to fly to LA for a week or a few days. Like fine, but you don't have to live here. And I think it used to be that like reps would only really seriously look at people unless they lived in LA. 
So I think that's been maybe one like quote unquote good thing about the pandemic is it's like opened up a lot more doors for people to like live outside of LA and, and maybe work within the industry. But I know for me, in terms of like building my list, I filled up pretty quickly when I was at CSP with people that I knew, like writers I'd been sort of tracking and that I had met over the years. And I was thinking to myself, if I become a manager, that's somebody I would like to represent. If I do become a manager, that's somebody I'd like to represent. So I've never really been in that position where I was like, oh my goodness, I need to fill my list with all these clients because I did already kind of come to the table with a lot of clients in mind. So that's another reason why it's like, I'm not always like seeking out a ton of clients. That said, obviously, I think any rep will tell you if somebody comes to them and is like, the greatest writer with something that's right up their alley. And, you know, maybe they'll, they'll find ways to make room on their list for them. But I think if you're looking to sign a lot of the time, if you're looking to be signed, I should say, it's better to approach maybe junior agents and like people that have just become managers because they'll be in that same position that I was in where like, that's that moment of opportunity where their lists are as empty as they'll ever be. So I would say always kind of watch the trades, like who, who's the new group that was just, you know, promoted at UTA? Who are the people who are new agents at any of the agencies? Those are probably the people that are best to reach out to. They're going to be hungrier and they're going to be looking and they're going to have availability and they're going to have time. So those are probably the people that makes the most sense to go after on the representation side. And like, you know, when you're going after you know, sending a query letter to a potential manager or, or agent, what is like the ideal thing to send? Is it just like, like one log line? Or is it just like, this is who I am, I'd love to send you something like what do you want to see in your inbox if you were looking for a writer? Well, I can first of all, tell you what I don't want to see. I don't want to <laughs> see material, because that's potentially a legal liability for anybody to look at. So I would say if you're considering, oh, I'll just throw this script on and maybe if this rep has a few minutes, they'll read it. They're not going to read it. They'll say this writer shouldn't have sent me material that I did not request. So I would say never attach material, even if it's a pitch, even if it's an outline, just don't send it. You have to wait until it's been requested because part of this whole little song and dance, right? When you're first like establishing contact with a potential rep is to show that you know how to play by the rules. And if right out of the gate, you're like, oh, I think that I can just send material that is unsolicited, you're proving that you actually don't really know how the system works. And that's a big no-no is to send unsolicited material. Log lines even, I will be honest with you, not so long ago, I sent (laughs) a query letter before I was a manager. I remember sending a query letter to a, a management production company, and I did put the log line in. And I remember I got such a nasty email from their legal, like business and legal department saying, this log line is very similar to a project that we have in development, blah, 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 cease and desist. I was like, oh boy, (laughs) this is a rude awakening. Like don't even send a log line. So what I would say, if you're reaching out to a potential rep, talk more about yourself, the types of things you write. I'd love to send you some log lines. You can talk in like generalities about what it is you've written that you'd like to send, but I would not send a log line because that's basically a pitch. That's a very short pitch. So in a way, that's a form of unsolicited material. So 
I now as a rep, if I'm approaching an agent, if I'm trying to attach talent, I mean, I'll throw in a log line now that I'm at zero gravity because people are, you know, most of these people I've built relationships with or whatever, but even now, and even at zero gravity, if it's somebody I don't know, if it's a producer, I don't know, I'll still even be a little iffy about sending a log line. I might say, oh, uh, you know, here's kind of the broad strokes of this project I'd like to send you. Can I send you the log line? Can I please send you the script? So you have to be very careful because that's the kind of thing that can turn off somebody if you're sending too much. Also, like on my LinkedIn, I state very clearly, like, please do not pitch to me. Please don't send me material. And people don't listen. And it's like, those are people I'm not going to consider because I said very... (laughs) obviously. So if you're not following these directions that I do not for legal liability purposes, want you to send me unsolicited material via, you know, instant message or whatever, don't send it. That I promise you that rep is not going to be like, well, this one time I'm going to read it. They're not. They're just delete or just ignore. If you're a filmmaker like Liz and I, would you consider sending like a trailer along to one of your movies or something? Does that, does that seem like a good way to introduce yourself? Or is that also I would ask. Just like kind of too much too soon? I would actually ask. Hmm. Let's say, may I send you a trailer? Something else that I will say I've been seeing lately, which kind of turns me off, is people will send me like, here's a link to my calendar. Here's when I'm available if you'd like to meet me. Why don't you schedule your appointment to meet with me at my convenience? I'm like, no. I My schedule is so insane. I can't do it to your convenience. You have to do it to my convenience if I were to reach out. But also, and not to, you know, I mean, it's a little presumptuous. Like, I would never have thought to do that. I wouldn't even do that now. Like, it's a weird you know. power imbalance. Like, if they're yeah. seeking you, your support, why aren't I? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to pretend like I'm any big Hollywood player. Like I'm, I'm new to the management game. I've failed in many capacities in this business, which is why I keep having to reinvent what I do. I'm not, I'm not somebody who, you know, has a big ego or whatever, but I do think like you have to just assume that if you're reaching out to somebody else and basically saying like, please take your time and please consider me that, yeah, it's like, you're kind of operating like within their window of availability. You're not expecting them to adopt yours. So you said something that I don't know about. So I wanted to ask you about, so you said like when you approached talent, you reached out to an agent to to attach talent to a project. So Mm -hmm. again, I'm so very indie that like, this is new to me. So I know that managers can produce versus agents cannot produce. But are you saying in that instance, you were taking on the producer role and starting to develop like a package for that project on behalf of the writer? Yeah, basically, because a lot of times there are nowadays, some of the streamers, they say, bring us something turnkey, which Mm -hmm. is to me the worst term I've ever heard in relation to a project turnkey. I already feel like a real estate agent working on commission, right? So I'm like, really turnkey? So I'm supposed to do everything. And then I'm like, interesting. So I'm supposed to attach a director and I'm supposed to attach all the talent. What are the development people doing? Because when I worked in development, that's where all the fun was. So it seems very weird to me. And I think it's just about mitigating risk. I think it's just because it's easier for them. And maybe, you know, their plates are so full assessing material that it just tips the scales easier for them. Oh, well, this one has an A-list actress 
attached. Therefore, it must be good. So it goes to the top of the pile. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. So yeah, like I'm often as a manager slash producer in a position where I'm reaching out to stars, production companies, or their managers or their agents saying, I have this great project. I'd love to attach your client. Is that possible? Would you, pl-? you know, it's kind of like begging, right? It's like, see, we all beg on, in our own way, depending on our role in this industry. <laughs> so it's like, for me, the begging comes and it's like, will you please read this unfinanced piece of material? And most of the time it's, oh, wait, it, it, it's not financed. No, that's okay. It used to be easier, I think, to a certain extent. Like, I even remember me just as a writer with my like production company when I'd reach out to agents, like, even at the big agencies back in the day, five, six, seven years ago. Hey, I have a great script. I remember I sent one to Anna Ferris's agent. What do you think of the script? Oh, I sent it to her. Let's see what she says. Like, that wouldn't happen now. Oh, but is it finance? You know, there'd be questions, which I understand especially coming out of the pandemic. So this is what's happening on their side. The reps, they want to make money. Those agents want to make money like I want to make money. So they want offers. They just want to be fielding offers when possible. If they're, you know, divvying up material and to their clients and saying like, oh, this is a passion project that you would just be an attachment. That's a harder sell for them to the client. And I think a lot of clients, a lot, probably a lot of the people on their slate want to be making guaranteed money coming out of the pandemic. So I think everything's been put in a little bit more of a tenuous position where it's like harder to get material out, harder to get projects out, harder to get attention because people don't want risk. They want guaranteed money. They want to know if they read a script that they've, you know, they put like the highest value on their time. Like if, if you're reading an unfinanced project, it's a gamble. Whereas at least if it's something that has money behind it, it's less so. Mm. So there are certain reps I can tell you, and I'm not going to name who they are because they're my special secret weapons, but, and they rep big actors and I can go to them with anything unfinanced and they're like, sure, I'll read it, send it. And they'll read it. But those people are far and few between. Like most reps, agents, managers, it doesn't matter they're hoping that there's money there before you even bring it to them. But then it's a chicken or the egg scenario because the financiers want attachments. The streamers want attachments. The little production companies want attachments. So then it's like this delicate dance of like trying to get attachments on every side to get the other thing in place. So it's really just like this like game of Jenga, right? Where you're like, okay, I I know somebody at this agency who knows this actor and I think they'd be willing to read an unfinanced project. But even then they have to like it. They have to be passionate enough about it to sign on to an unfinanced project. So say you're lucky enough to get a director on to your unfinanced project. Well, you still probably need a star on. So then it's leveraging the director's name to get the actress on. And then it's this whole other layer of like rejections from the various people who either won't read it because it's unfinanced or who just don't like the project. Or I mean, you know, ideal. And I know everyone thinks like you're heartless managers, you're heartless agents, you're all reps, you're cold. And (laughs) but (laughs) I feel it. I feel rejection every day, just the way that I did when I was a writer on my own. But I feel it now for many people. I feel the rejection for all of my clients. So it is miserable. Mondays are the worst. 
Monday morning, I open up my email because that's past day. Because a lot of people have their weekend reads or just, you know, people, you know, agents or whatever. It's like, that's when a lot of the time they'll get their reading done. So Monday morning, they're like, oh, let me get this rejection off my plate. So then my inbox just fills with like, sorry, pass, pass, pass. (laughs) So you're talking about this chicken and the egg situation with financing. Like, how have you seen it work successfully in in the past? Is it it really Uh like getting that agent, you know, that actor to sign on on an unfinanced project and that's the only way it goes? Or are there other ways that you've seen it work out where you're able to get some money in first, then you can say we're partially financed, then you can go to the... Like, how have you seen it be actually successful? I've seen, yes, any and all of the permutations you're talking about. I think every project's different. I've seen somebody gets the right director on and then that's all they need for everything to fall in place. Somebody gets some first money in and then the other money follows and then they can just make offers. Somebody gets a casting director on board who really knows what they're doing and somehow the casting director is able to maneuver and operate in such a way that you're able to get attachments without money on the table. So it just, I mean, it really depends on, I think it's about like figuring out what your resources are what your personal network is and just like using that to its utmost. But you also have to be careful and you have to be choosy. Like you you can't keep going back to the same well, right? So you have to like, it has to be something you really love. If you're going to start calling in favors, it has to be something you're really confident in. If it's just something you're kind of like meh about, chances are they'll also be meh about it. I think people can feel when creators are passionate. I think it's hard to fake. And I think that that can be the greatest asset that any writer or anyone brings to any call or any meeting is just like real passion and enthusiasm. I think especially the people who've been in this business a long time, they get very jaded and they don't get excited anymore about anything. They get kind of like blase. But if you can keep that spark throughout your career, I think that's almost like the, the most important thing, more so than talent. I think if, if you're in somehow enthusiastic about a shitty project you find a way to love it, other people will find a way to love it, even if maybe it's not that great. Because that's infectious. Like if you really are excited and, and that that shows, I think other people like latch on to that. All right. Any last questions before we move on? Yeah. The last question is like, when, when do you think like an upcoming writer is ready for, for management? Like if they have one, is it one great piece of material and like that's all that they need or like, cause you hear a lot of writers and a lot of my friends who are like aspiring, aspiring to have management. They're like, okay, I'm going to have like three pilots, two features and like one show that's like booked at like, you know, got a whole show Bible. And then, then when I have all those things, then I'll be ready. But like, what is it to you? Like, when are we ready to go out and find management? I would say two amazing pieces of material would be all you need, like a lead sample and a backup sample. I don't think you need like a whole truck's worth of material. Cause also, you know, what rep has time to like wade through with a potential new client, like 80 million things. So I'd say, you know, and hopefully that takes the stress off for some people. Like I certainly, if somebody came to me and said, I have an amazing screenplay. And then if I read it and was like, oh my God, it is so amazing. Do you have like one other thing? Chances are quite honestly, and I have done this. I've signed people off one piece of material that I just loved where I was like, oh my God, I love this. But typically if you can write one amazing thing, you have the capacity to write other amazing things. I think it's really hard for somebody to write one amazing thing and just never again write anything that's, <laughs> that's worth showing. So to me, honestly, at the end of the day, just one thing would be enough. 
But I think as long as you can prove to any potential rep that you can repeat that kind of success with one other piece. And I think I would say, I don't know, it's hard to say, but I'd say in this environment, pick a lane, say, I want to try to focus first on TV or features. And on the TV side, you know, it used to be back when I started back in my day that it was like, right, specs of pre-existing shows. So I had like a Malcolm in the Middle spec, you know, that 70s show spec. So that tells you how old I am. You know, I had specs for all these shows that were on the air and it was a spec for Bernie Mac and it was a spec for Scrubs. My Scrubs spec is what got me my first agent. And I had specs. He said, you should write an original pilot. Mm -hmm. So he signed me off the specs. So I wrote my original pilot. And because I was in a mindset, I was like, oh, wow, look at me. It didn't take me that long to get an amazing agent at a big agency. I guess I'm a fantastic writer. So I like, you know, wrote my, my original pilot and sent it to him. And he was like, ugh. And then he dropped me and I never heard from him again. <sighs> so yeah, I would also say, while you don't want a million voices in your head giving you potentially conflicting feedback, if you're a green writer, it is good to maybe like have a writer's group, get some feedback, because perhaps if I had been in a group or something and I would have given that pilot to other writers, they would have been like, this isn't ready. Do some more drafts. Make sure it's really good to go before you give it to this new agent of yours. But I guess I was so arrogant. I thought anything I write is amazing. Look, I wrote these other scripts that got me an agent or the so, agent was so short-sighted that they just decided to drop the hat to make a mercurial decision you know yeah. sorry not i just no you're right yeah and it was it was very upsetting because it was so exciting to me as a young writer to be signed and then i was like almost as quickly dropped mm -hmm. so i know i like i said i know what it's like on all sides and then after that I mean, I went through quite a few reps. Like sometimes it's like, you know, with finding a great medical doctor, like you have to go through like a few before you land on the one that you really like and you really want to stick with, you feel comfortable with. I think also some people have like different dynamics when it comes to their relationship with their reps. I know some people feel, especially starting out, like the rep is their boss. Other people, like I've had writers that, you know, clients that were just like friends, you know, like, I mean, I'd say I have that relationship with most of my clients where it's like, we're pals, but I also represent them. And I think that's a really healthy relationship to have. That said, there's, you know, a certain line of like, okay, I'm the rep and this is what I do. And you're the client. But I think it's really good to have a friendly relationship. I think if you're having sort of a, like, I'm the rep and I'm up here and you're the writer and you're down here and you do what I tell you to do, like, that's not a great relationship. And inevitably, if the writer becomes successful, that dynamic will change. And then it'll be more about like, I've got to try to keep this writer. And it's funny to see that happen. But I've definitely seen that happen. I'm going to jump into the next set of our questions. Sure. And I'm going to try to kind of rejigger this one. But what's the first film you made? And we use that, you know, produce, write, we're a part of a larger contingency being a part of the studio film, whatever it is. And how do you feel about it now? All right, I would say the first film that I had anything to do with in a substantial semi-substantial way was when I worked at Miramax Dimension Films Spy Kids. And I mean, in terms of support staff, it's like I was a, a development assistant. So I wasn't 
on set. It was more filing things and arranging things. And but that was the first movie that like I was there from like the beginning to end where it's like the script came in. Everyone was talking about it. You know, I, I was in on a lot of the decision making in terms of my contributions to the movie. I'd say it's like, you know, practically nothing. But I was there for all of it. So in my mind, that's the first movie like that I had maybe like in my heart, some ownership of what do I think of it now? I, I think it's still a great little family film. I think as with anything that deals with special effects over time, you kind of look back and you're like, huh, okay, that'd be done perhaps a little differently today. But like Robert Rodriguez, like did it all himself. Like it was really impressive. Like he did all the special effects, I think just like on his home computer or something. So, but yeah, that one that was one that was interesting because when it came in, people were like, Robert Rodriguez wants to do a family film. Huh? Okay. And it was fun to see it take off because the other movies, some of them that I made there weren't uh, perhaps as noteworthy. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hmm. Filmmaking advice I've ever received. Well, in terms of like specifically dealing with development, because that's more my forte than, you know, nuts and bolts on the set. I would say when giving notes, it's not about throwing in everything in the kitchen sink. That's a very sort of, you know, amateur way of giving notes. And this is what I think of this scene. And this is what I think of that scene. And let me give you like 10 pages worth of notes on your script that you didn't ask for. When giving notes, it's best to give three notes if you can. And he said, I always get, just give three for every draft. He said, if you can't boil it down to three kind of global notes, maybe the notes aren't worth giving. And I'm not talking about like, you know, there was a, a grammar error on page six or whatever. I'm talking about like story or character. And so I try to stick to that. I try not to overwhelm people with notes and feedback. And also, I try not to overdevelop things with my clients because when we take things out and hopefully sell them, they're just going to get redeveloped and put through the ringer with the development department at whatever place becomes its home. So why would I drive my client crazy. And this is, this is the client's chance for the material to be as close to what they want it to be as they're going to get, most likely. So let's let it live in that space just for a little while as we take it out to market. But I would say, yeah, my big advice is try not to overwhelm people with your feedback and think that your feedback is somehow more important than what their creative vision is. Because I think that's Everyone in Hollywood's like, oh, well, this is my opinion on it. And this is what I think. It's like, well, they're the writer. Like, let, let their vision be the vision. Do you have a goal as, as a rep and as a writer? Well, like I said, one of my goals is to just have everybody working, right. and creating and <laughs> yes. succeeding. So that would be my goal for my client list. For me, I would say my goal is I really want to like move more into the producing space I love putting projects together. I love coming up with ideas for projects and like seeing them through. So I would say maybe like, you know, focusing long-term a little bit more on the producing side would be one of my personal career goals. If you go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Hmm. Okay. I'll be very honest with you about this piece of advice, which really isn't relevant today, but I wish that somebody would have <laughs> given it to me very early in my career because I feel like things would have played out differently. Early in my career, I met some guy who had just been staffed on a show as a writer. And I said, oh, wow, how did you get that job? That's amazing. And he said, oh, I'll tell you what I did. I just lied. He said, I made up my whole resume. It was all fake. And then based on my fake resume, I just kept getting 
jobs. And then eventually my fake resume became a real resume. And it became like the self-fulfilling prophecy. I was like, oh my God. Like, oh, I, my mom had raised me to be like, people will check your resume. People will call and check your references. So I really thought, and I think that more so is the case today. And obviously there's the internet now. People can, can check you on LinkedIn and check all these things. But if I could go back in time and tell myself, write a fake resume, fill, fill everything with lies. You'll get so much further, so much faster. I would do that. My brother is in the industry and his girlfriend created a fake internship for me for my film school application. Right. So, and See? I got, yeah. Lying works. <laughs> so horrible. I've never said that out loud. And the, fi- <laughs> the final question is making movies hard. I mean, yeah, it is really hard. It's so, it's so challenging. And I think part of the reason is because it is a group endeavor. So, you know, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, imagine how great that is. You get up on a stage, it's all you. It is unadulterated you and your material. And that's one reason why I really love stand-up. And I love going to see stand-up a lot. And actually, when I worked at Three Arts, I used to frequent the clubs and I used to see people like Kevin Hart and Jim Gaffigan, like very early in their careers doing stand-up. And it was very clear even then, like they're going to be huge. They're going to be big stars because their material was amazing but it's all them. And when you're dealing with film, it's obviously a lot of cooks in the kitchen and that's why things can go wrong. And, you know, I mean, and things can go wrong at any point in the process. So it can be bad editing. It can be bad directing. It can be bad writing. But I would say the one thing that I've always found to be true is you will never get a great film from a bad script. You can get a bad film from a great script because so many things can go wrong along the way. So the one thing that I always, and it's so obvious, it's common sense, but you just want to make sure that the script is as amazing as it can be, especially because so many other things can go wrong along the way. You want at least the story and the characters and what you're starting with to be fantastic. So if it means 10 more drafts, do 10 more drafts. Like get it as like, make it sing. It, it's so funny because I feel like a lot of us as as filmmakers, especially making your first movie, sometimes it's like I just want to make a movie so bad. It's like let's just let's just go. Let's just make. And we've heard this time and t- time and time again on the show, and also from my friends and my own experiences. So uh, yeah, don't do that, people. <laughs> Put time yeah, to your script it. is very important. <laughs> oh, and I I like I mean like with my pilot right that I sent I was all bright eyed and bushy tailed sent it to my agent. It wasn't ready clearly, but I was just so excited. I wanted to get it out there. While on one hand, I'm telling you, passion, excitement, enthusiasm is super important. Don't let it eclipse quality. Like that still needs to be the order of the day. Things have to be so good. I mean, it's all about the execution, especially because things have become so like franchise driven and IP driven. It's so hard to get an original idea made today. So it really does have to be original. It has to be really well executed. You can't cut corners on the script. Even though I know people get excited and they're like, oh, we'll just throw it together and then we'll film it. Chances are it won't be how you, <laughs> how you want it to be in the end. <laughs> What's your call to action for our audience? How can they support you? Or what do you want to send them to? Social media, whatever, whatever, or nothing. Oh, well, I mean, anyone's always, of course, welcome to link in with me on LinkedIn. I always like it may take me a while to accept a LinkedIn request. 
I always accept them though. I don't like cherry pick because I think LinkedIn is one place where everybody should be connecting. You know, I don't think people should be like precious about who they link in with on LinkedIn. So I, I love LinkedIn for that, for that reason. But like conversely, like I said, you know, people try to like send me material and stuff via LinkedIn. Please don't do that. Of course, you can ask me, like you can message me and say, is it okay if I reach out to you at your, at your zero gravity email? Is it okay if I send you material? That's different. That's like the right way to go. But people, I think people get anxious and they, they're just like, I'm just going to pull out all the stops and try to pitch you via my initial interaction with you. But I mean, it's like going on a date with somebody. Like if somebody just came up to you in a bar and said, will you go out with me? That's a little jarring. Like you got to like, you know, work your way into it a little bit. Amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Liz. What do you remember about our talk with Layla? I remember that she likes the type of writer that I also want to see supported in this industry. Industry. She was saying a writer who has lived, a writer who has was a little bit older, has more life experience. Like that made me very, very happy to know that there were people out there in the world who wanted to support emerging artists who are not 22 years old. Like I'm so tired of like this ridiculous ageist community that we're all in. That's like the, the salient element of the conversation that that pipes up when you ask me that question. What do you remember? What do I remember? I remember how interesting her career was that she kind of did a lot of little of everything. She was like in development. She was like working at big companies. And then, you know, just hearing like the tale of how she ended up where she is now was very fascinating to me. And like, just so interesting that everyone's career, it's not, it's not a straight line. It's always like these curves and these ebbs and these flows and everything that, that moves around, you know? I also thought that it was really interesting the way that she likes to work with her writers, that she just really wants to to focus on them and, and not like take on too many clients, you know, and really try to be there for them and, and do a good job with the, the people that she has. And I also like that she she was more focused on feature work than other managers that we've talked to or other, you know, agent people that we've talked to. Like, you know, the, it was always like a push for television. And, and obviously that was a big part of like, you know, that was definitely included in her game plan for her writers is getting staffed on, on TV shows and stuff. But it wasn't the only thing that she was interested for her writers. So I thought that was cool, too. Yeah, it was amazing. Yay, Lila. Thank you for inviting her on the show, Ulrich. Yeah, of course. This week, we have an article from Eric Cohn over at IndieWire about how long it takes for a movie to be released after it's made its splash at all the big film festivals. This is a really interesting article. He talks about how through streaming, there may be or could be a way for filmmakers to capitalize on the buzz of their festival plays and get the movie to audiences immediately rather than waiting a full season for the film to be released by a distributor. And it also comments on, I guess there were some negative responses to his article that we talked about last week about the Rotterdam programmers being fired. A few people who came out in defense of how programmers were should be in service of a greater vision, who was the artistic director of the film festival who fired them. So anyway, this was, as per usual, Eric Cohn's making some vast statements and suggestions for improvements to the industry. 
Ulrich, what were your thoughts in response to this? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I just love how Eric is always trying to like solve problems. Like, well, what if you just did this? And then it would be no problem. Like, you should just have a service that you can like have your your uh, movie that's in this just finished playing festivals just go straight up on there straight from the screener from the festival and then blah blah blah. Then you just have you know a way for people to see your movie and you get to make money on your sales on your release and you know it's like it was such a magical, fantastical, unicorn filled sort of like idea. But it's like it completely cuts out distributors, basically. Or you'd have to work with a distributor who would accelerate the release to a point where they would get it out that quickly. But that's not how distributors work. So I just don't think that this, this what he's suggesting doesn't work with distributors. I think you'd have to do it like more of a, you know, a self-distributed model, you know, where like you just do it yourself or you just take your, the art you already have from your festival run, you take everything that you already made to get the movie out in festivals, and then you just put that onto some kind of platform, you know? But like distributors are going to hate this idea because it just it takes away their 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 power and their money and their control, you know, and I think that's a big part of, you know, how the distribution world works is that like, you know, you give your movie over to them and now they're the ones who are the gatekeepers, the ones who take care of it. And like, they're the only ones who can sell it properly. Oh, you're a little art. You don't know what good art is. We know the art that people want to buy. Like, we're the ones. And not, I'm, I mean, not, I'm not trying to talk shit about like all distributors. I mean, this is exactly what my distributor told me. But I think it's like, I think there are, is some merit to it. But I think to some degree, it's like you could just do what Eric is saying. And it would probably benefit filmmakers a lot to do it that way. But I'm not sure if it benefits all the players in the system who these things need to benefit in order for people to, to buy into them, you know? But I mean, I think there's a few elements to this that I would want to comment on. And one is I work with mainly mid tier or what I call middle class filmmakers. They're not the Sundance filmmakers, though. I have a client who played slam dance this year. So that's kind of exciting. But point being, if they understood the landscape better, they would pitch to distributors earlier. And then there could be a way to shorten windows and there could be a way to make this lapse between festivals and distribution a lot shorter. But I think that a lot of first-time filmmakers don't even understand that there's like a long runway up to getting your film up on platforms. It's at least five months usually. You know, you sign a contract, you don't go live until at least five months until after that contract is signed. If you bake that into your timeline, there could be a world where you can get a little bit of festival promotion and and dip right into your the release of your film. I think it's very possible. But the issue is, is and I've noticed this about Eric Cohn, is that he makes these grand statements for improvements in the industry that are based off of what top tier filmmakers experience. So like me playing, I love Woodstock, but me premiering at Woodstock or me playing Cleveland International, wonderful festivals, lovely festivals, only really the local market is paying attention to that film festival. The buzz that I'm getting will only translate to those people who are aware of that film festival and its connotations. Whereas the film festivals he speaks on have a global stage. He talked about TIFF. He talked about Sundance. Like we can go on and on about these top tier film film festivals and their influence versus mid tier film festivals and their influence. So I just think it's frustrated that he offers these solutions and say, well, you can build on buzz. And it's like, what kind of buzz are the filmmakers who play, you know, Naperville Independent Film Festival getting? They're getting local buzz. They're not getting national press. So I don't think that's really a solution for the mid-tier filmmaker. I also want to acknowledge that we've been talking about using your festival run as your theatrical run for like years. 
And yeah. we should be. We should. That should be seen as our theatrical run. There should be a more blending of of the rights. There should be more overlapping of availability. We should be able to be everywhere at once. It's the ridiculous controlling nature, just like you said, of all the people involved in these windows that is dangerous. And then he referenced the Amazon Festival Stars, which is such a flawed program to begin with. And he talks about it as like that it was a potential savior for this industry in that there was a floor. Amazon Festival Stars, if you remember, they gave films like a specific license fee if they played certain film festivals. And the film festival would be like if it was Sundance, it was something. If it was South by, it was something else. If it was Tribeca, it was something else. It was Bentonville, you know, like the festival deemed what the value of the film was. But distributors, shitty distributors would just absorb those Amazon Film Festival fees and then provide an MG that was like $10,000, $25,000 more than that and would exploit that system in a way that filmmakers weren't really benefiting wow. from it. So I'm just acknowledging that like that wasn't a good a situation for filmmakers either. And what we need is flexibility and a willingness for all windows to work together and for filmmakers to be aware of the timeline of distribution so that they can utilize all of this to their advantage. There's my soapbox. I could go on. I won't. Nice. I'll ask you this question. So priming this for everyone listening, like in our staff meeting yesterday, I was like, I'm going to ask Ulrich a question. Let me. So he already knows the question, but I'll say it out loud. And it's how do you schedule your week when someone says, let's do this, you know, let's have a coffee or let's have a meeting. How do you decide where to put them and why do you do that? And how do you make your calendar as efficient as possible? Because I have little tricks on my end, but I wanted to know what am I missing? I am very bad with this right now because, you know, I, I basically I have my daughter for three days a week for five hours. And so those those five hours, like I, can, I can't really take anything that, you know, isn't during one of her naps, basically. And so, and her naps just changed. So it's all very different now. But basically, that was how I would do things. Like if it was during a nap time, I would try to schedule any like creative meetings or any like film related meetings during one of her naps. And then, you know, I have to also jack- juggle my, my day job schedule. So it's just trying to, you know, make sure I don't have a, a, real, a real meeting or not real meeting, but a meeting for my day job during that time. And so it's just trying to like manage all the pieces, you know. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was doing things like blocking off an hour to write every day and, you know, focusing on those things. But like, basically, you know, it's it's like just a rush to get my tasks done so that when she wakes up, I'm ready to, to take care of her, you know. And then on Mondays and Fridays, those are the days where I, I, I don't have to watch her at all. And so those days I schedule more things and I, you know, tend to try to, you know, do some things for myself or, you know, put some time to, to creative projects on those days. But yeah, basically, it's like, it's very disorganized right now for me. It's like getting everything that I have to get done, done. And then if I have time left over, then I can put it towards even answering creative, like creative related emails or emails for that are just for me and not like work emails. Or I can, you know, maybe put some time into writing or like thinking about a project or something. But I'm sure you are like a boss at scheduling because you have, you're you're a freelancer and you're a creative and you're, you're a mom too. So I'm sure you've got like everything figured out. So like, let us know like what your scheduling tips are. Well, I, I make it known that I'm very focused on time so that people don't take it personally, or I hope they don't take it personally. But in the space of the call, at some point during the call, I reference that the call will be ending soon. 
Because to me, I think some people presume that meetings are an hour and that shouldn't be a base presumption. I also (laughs) send out calendar entries with the duration of the meeting that we're all that I can fit in. Right. So if like all my meetings for consulting, if I don't know the person very well and it's a first meeting, it's, you know, half hour and I'll reference in the email, I'm happy to take a 20 to 30 minute call. Like it's basically my experience is like making sure the other person and you are on the same page in terms of duration. And then there are certain people, I actually, I really love talking to you and, and, and Eric, this is, I'm not talking about you guys, but there's certain people <laughs> who really trespass against like those boundaries. And then those are the people that I put up against other meetings where like I will specifically schedule something that I'm really nervous about right after that so that I'm frantically like I use every trick in the book to make sure the call doesn't go long because there are people who just have no sense of like have no sense of like how much time they take in a phone call (laughs) or in a Zoom. All right. So like I have certain strategies like that, but I block out Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings for hiking and a shower. And then what I've been starting to do is every day from four to five, if I can afford it, I go outside and I try to read like for fun for just a little bit. I've not been able to do oh, it for nice. a few days now, but but I know everyone has their hacks and I want to hear what they are and I want to use them. But mine is really an, an both an offensive and a defensive strategy because I think the core of projects not moving forward seems to be people just wanting to like wax about like philosophically about how to put a film together rather than actually putting a film (sighs) together and that drives me crazy yeah people love to talk about how they they are going to make their movie or like how you should make your movie you know but they don't people don't necessarily just make movies yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like, like I, the amount of people I've talked to about making movies is, is this big. And the amount of people I've actually made movies with is this big. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Like, and that's, and that's just, I think that's the nature of the business, right? Like, there's just so much talk, so many opinions, so many, like, you know, people who like think they've got it all figured out, you know, or like they're, they're going to make their movie or, oh, they can help you make your movie or whatever. And I think, you know, it all comes down to just making it. And like all the talk is like just extra, basically. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like I sent my, I'm producing this guy's first feature and he sent me a latest draft of a script. It's wonderful. It's really good. And I sent him notes and he wrote me, he's like, do you want to talk about these notes? And I wrote, no. I don't. And I, I felt Just really do them. Ev- like I felt really <laughs> evil about that. And I was like, if you like them, use them. And if you don't, don't use them. Like we don't need to talk about them. If you have a question, you can ask me. But like, what is the point of talking about the notes? I think we talk things to death. Speaking of that, we are hosts of a podcast. (laughs) But I don't think we talk anything to death here. But just an acknowledge, maybe it's just an encouragement for everyone to do more, talk less. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I feel like when I was trying to make my feature, I was always trying to figure out like, what what are the conversations to have that are actually going to result in the movie getting made? And I feel like the things that the the, the conversations to me that, that actually result in something like constructive is scheduling conversations and shotless conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think like those mm-hmm. two things like are huge. And then if like once you can start setting dates and you have a schedule to work off of and, and and a budget that like is realistic that you actually have I think yeah scheduling, budget, 
and shot list. I feel like those three things, like once you get that figured out, then I think you can actually make your movie. But until you get those things figured out, like you don't have any hope. You're just not going to make a movie. So I don't know. It all comes down to the money in the end, you know, but I feel like you can start scheduling and you can start shot listing without the money, you know, take the money away, just do those two things. And then, you know, while you work towards getting the money, but I feel like if you do those other things, like, cause you've said it a thousand times, like set the dates, set the date. And I feel like that's really great advice that, that shouldn't be overstated. You know, here's a really, really lovely thing that we get to do, which we haven't got to do in a long time. We have a new brand, brand new iTunes review. This one's from Canada. It's titled Fantastic from Jess Makes Films. Here's what Jess has to write. The interviews on the show are really, really good. And the host asks the questions you are dying to hear. I like how totally candid Ulrich and Liz seem to be. Sometimes I'm surprised at their willingness to speak towards certain subjects so openly. It's also wonderful hearing about all the different journeys filmmakers had producing and making their own films. Very inspiring. You can learn so much from the show. Admittedly, I only started listening the last couple of years, but all the episodes I've heard are wonderful. If I had one critique, it would be that Ulrich doesn't have the most radio-friendly voice. But you get used to it, and he's a great host, and probably most relatable to people trying to make their first feature. I enjoyed hearing about his journey to making the alternate. Liz is equally awesome and seems like a fun person. She has a lot with her knowledge about distribution and producing indie films. If you're trying to make indie films, this podcast is a must listen. Thank you, MMIH team. Five stars. Well, thank you. Just makes films from Canada. Such an international review. And I disagree on one point. I think Ulrich's voice is perfect (laughs) for podcasting radio. But to each their own, right? To each their own. If any of you have a thought on Ulrich's voice, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to... Podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes and you could talk about his voice there too. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to shout out the International Screenwriters Association because we like them a lot. They connect writers with filmmakers. They offer courses, contests. They have a top 25 writers list. Head on over to www.networkisa.org. Sign up for free today. We want to thank Lalo Cater Dom for coming on the show. The ISA for making the ISA for making the connection. That's right. We didn't even talk about that. The actually the ISA is responsible for Layla being on the show. So thank you, International Screenwriters Association. We want to thank our editor Jeff Rymoot for just being amazing and saving saving me from all my blunders. And thanks to our producer Eric Toms for being equally awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week. 